when an event happens in your life, it doesn't cause suffering. Suffering begins the instant you label what happened. This is terrible. I can't bear it. You lose your job. Okay, you now have time. You lose your job and go, oh my God, how am I going to pay the mortgage? My kid's tuition is due. This is terrible. And the moment you say this is terrible, at that instant, suffering begins. Hi, I'm Vishen Lakhiani, founder of Mind Valley, the school for human transformation. You're listening to the Mind Valley podcast, where we'll be bringing you the greatest teachers and thought leaders on the planet to discuss the world's most powerful ideas and personal growth for mind, body, spirit, and work. Sri Kumar Rao, you are one of the probably one of the greatest MBA business school professors in America today, probably the world. You are one of the only business school professors who creates such a massive change in your student lives that there are alumni groups of people who have attended your classes. There's a wait list to get into your classes. And for all of you listening, I've never been in one of Sri Kumar's classes, but what I've known is Sri Kumar as a friend. Sri Kumar was one of the first ever speakers I ever put on my stage at A-Fest. I had a conversation with Sri Kumar. It was a very intimate conversation. And I told him about how I was going through a rough time. I was, I was stressed out. Work was not having, being, feeling much fun anymore. And I was, you know, I'll, I'll admit it. I, I felt that life was a bit of a uphill challenge. And Sri Kumar shared a quote with me and an idea and a model of reality that instantly dissolved that. And I thought it was so beautiful. I had to bring him on so that he could share the same insight with you. We'll come to that in a bit. So wait on for that. But I can tell you in seven days of understanding this model, it shifted my life. So without further ado, let's go deep into this conversation with Sri Kumar Rao. Now, Sri, before we we start, I, I always like to ask um, our guest teachers a question. What gets you out of bed every morning? <laughs> All right, Vishen, I've thought about that and I can answer that fairly easily. For many years, I got out of bed and it was, oh God, it's Monday morning again. And it was an uphill battle. I felt like Sisyphus rolling the stone up the mountain. And now I get up in the morning and every day is a joy. And there are many, many of us who wake up in the morning and we go to jobs which do not call to us. We are in work environments which stifle us. And what I would like to do is have Everybody get up in the morning with their blood singing at the thought of being who they are and doing what they do. And I'd like to change the environment of business so that it is conducive to people being their very best, both professionally and personally. And the thought of helping is what makes me get up in the morning. Thank you, Sreen. I can certainly see how you're doing that. So, Sreen, in this interview, we're going to talk about a model that has touched the numerous, the thousands of students who have attended your course, Creativity and Personal Mastery. And it's not something that I guess you tend to think about when you think about business, but that model is called the model of the benevolent universe. And you say some of us believe that the universe is hostile to us and conspires to make our lives miserable. Yet you believe that the universe is benevolent and on our side. Let's go straight into that idea. So let's first define the universe. And I define the universe as anything that you say is not you. So there is you. And anything that you define as not you is the universe. And obviously, the universe includes uh, other people. It includes forces of nature. It includes inanimate and sentient objects. So it's a conglomerate of all of that. 
Now, there are some people who really believe that the universe conspires against them and they're dogged by bad luck. And no matter what endeavor they stretch out, they start out on, they're going to fail because the universe conspires against them. We all know such people. There aren't very many of them, but they're real downers. The vast majority of us believe that the universe is there and I'm out here and I'm doing my thing or the universe is doing its thing and the universe is not aware of me and doesn't particularly care about me. Sometimes by happenstance, it seems as though I get lucky and the universe is working with me. Sometimes, again, by happenstance, it seems as though the universe is working against me and no matter how hard I try, I don't get what I want. And the rest of the time, it's in between. And that's the way the universe functions. I'm here, universe is there. And, you know, we're indifferent to each other. And the universe certainly doesn't know about or care about me. That's a model. But let's assume that the universe is a sentient thing, an entity that is not unaware of, about you. It is actually aware about you. And not only is it aware of you, it is also well disposed towards you. It's benevolent. Now, the implications of this are tremendous because if the universe is benevolent and well disposed towards you, then the universe is your friend. And friends don't shaft friends, do they? Of course not. So this means that when something happens to you which you don't like and you might be tempted to say, ah, the universe has done me dirty, maybe it hasn't. Maybe you think it has done you dirty, but it really hasn't. Maybe it's done you a bit of good. You know, think of it this way. Uh, let's assume you're a child, a small child, and what you really want is a tub of ice cream. And what a wise parent gives you are fruits and vegetables. You don't want fruits and vegetables. You want a tub of ice cream. So fruits and vegetables doesn't seem a nice thing at all. doesn't seem as though it's a friendly universe giving you fruits and vegetables. But it's only when you become older and have a much different and higher level of understanding that you can become grateful that you had wise parents who gave you fruits and vegetables rather than a tub of ice cream. So in exactly the same way, you're given stuff that you don't want, financial reverses, relationship setbacks. It's not something you want. Maybe, just maybe, that's what you needed for your growth. And the interesting thing is the following. Regardless of whether or not the universe is benevolent, if you believed the universe was benevolent, it would make an incredible difference in your life. And what if the universe actually were benevolent? Then, my friend, you've just turbocharged your life and there is a systematic process by which I encourage persons to play around with the model, adopt it, and then they find, hey, it's not just a model. That really is the way the world works. And that, believe me, transforms lives. Wow. That, that was beautifully said. Now, I want to touch upon one thing you said. And, and those of you listening, CE people, think about what Sri Kumar just said. He said, whether or not this model is true. Imagine what your life would look like if you just played and, and pretended it was true. I kind of phrase it this way. I say it along the lines of, if you could accept any model of reality, why not accept the model of reality that you can literally bend the universe to your desires, right? And I yes. admit in my speeches, in my book that 
we can't say this is true. I mean, it's, it's non-scientific. We can't say this is true. It's personal experiences. But if it, even if it isn't true, simply adopting that idea that the universe is benevolent, that the universe is on your side, makes you live life in a completely different way. And when Sri Kumar reminded me of that a few days ago, the shift in me was instantaneous. I had forgotten that briefly while going through a really tough period at work with the book coming out and everything. And just a reminder to get back in that model shifted my life. And if the model is true, then boom, you're in for a double bonus. Sri Kumar, let's yes. continue. Absolutely. Now, here's how I teach at many of the world's top business schools. And MBAs tend to be very hard-headed, somewhat cynical people. And just because a they can recognize intellectually that a model is superior doesn't necessarily mean that they can adopt it. So my program, Creativity and Personal Mastery, actually gives them a systematic method of uh, arranging matters so that they can begin first to play with and then actually accept the model. And there's a very simple experiment that I encourage everyone who is going to be listening in to try this experiment. Now, they'll be in various time zones. They'll be in various uh, different physical, geographical locations. They could be in their office. They could be at their home. They could be on a train listening in uh, through headphones. But whatever it is, I encourage them to look around their surroundings where they are and pick out any object which is red. And having done that, I then invite them to shut their eyes and then remember any object which is blue. The vast majority of them will have no problem picking out an object that's red when they're looking for it. They will very rarely be able to remember something which is blue. And the reason for that is very simple. They were looking for the red. They didn't see the blue, even though blue was probably all around them in various objects. They didn't notice it because they weren't looking for it. It's exactly the same in our real life. If you want to accept the model that the universe is friendly, start actively looking for the instances in your life right now, every day, and back year by year at the number of times incredibly fortuitous things happened that you know, you can look back and say, gee, I really was lucky that happened. And you'll find that there are dozens of instances. And what I encourage you to do, in fact, what I require you to do in my program is write them down. Because if you don't write them down, you're going to forget. Write them down. Think of how many dozens, hundreds of instances there are, big ones and small ones. For example, you went to have lunch and there's a particular dessert you like. And when you went to the desert uh, table, there was only one of that left and somebody was reaching for it, but he was too late and you got it. Small instance, but, you know, once again, friendly universe. Think about uh, an exam that you crammed for and uh, uh, there was one area, topic area that you completely left out. And somehow or other, that topic area came in your question paper with a choice. So you didn't have to address that at all. If you look at it, you'll find that there are dozens, hundreds of such instances. Consciously recognize that and appreciate them. And as you start doing that, and as the number of examples multiply, you'll reach your personal tipping point. 
and say, hey, is it possible? Is it just possible that maybe it was a friendly universe after all? That's a signal for you to try harder. And when you try harder, you'll tip over. And I particularly want persons who are listening to this to think back in their lives about something that happened that at the time it happened, they thought, hey, this was terrible. But now they can look back upon it and say, hey, this was wonderful. So if something happened in the past that at the time it happened, you thought was terrible, but you can now look back and say that was pretty good. Is it just possible that what today you're about to classify as good could in three years, five years, 10 years turn out to be good after all? And if there's the slightest possibility this can happen, why are you in a hurry to label it good? Because understand, when an event happens in your life, it doesn't cause suffering. Suffering begins the instant you label what happened, this is terrible, I can't bear it. You lose your job, okay, you now have time. You lose your job and go, oh my God, how am I going to pay the mortgage? My kid's tuition is due, this is terrible. And the moment you say this is terrible, at that instant, suffering begins. So what happens if you never label it, this is terrible? Then suffering doesn't begin. And if you then take the next step and say, is there anything that I can do to actually make this good? And all of a sudden, avenues of action will open up to you that would never even have occurred to you before. And your life will have been transformed and you'll become incredibly resilient because nothing will face you ever. Wow, that was deep. I want to suggest a simple system. Uh, you've studied my work before. So when Sri Kumar was talking about the importance of focusing on the instances of benevolence in the universe, think of that as gratitude. And Sri Kumar, tell me if you agree, if you have another um, system that, that you could introduce here. So in many of my presentations, I speak about why it's so important when you start your day to not just express gratitude for the things that happened the previous day, but to also do that little exercise that comes from Esther Hicks segment intending, where you divide your upcoming day into segments and you tell yourself, wouldn't it be nice if I have an uh, incredible commute? Wouldn't it be nice if my lunch meeting today went superbly well, that the food was delicious, that the conversations were rich? It's because you are training your mind to find that red. You're training your mind to pay attention to all the beautiful things that happen in that specific day. And whether it's the benevolent universe, whether it's simply your brain's uh, reticular activating system, it doesn't matter. What you're doing is, is you're getting your mind to focus on the positive. So that is a beautiful system. I hope all of you are applying in your lives at this point. Sri Kumar, back I to you. I would like to add something to that vision. Uh, in fact, appreciation gratitude is one of the cornerstone exercises in my program. Most of us spend way too much time focusing on the two, three or four things that are wrong in our lives. More precisely, on the two, four, three, or four things that we have arbitrarily decided are wrong with our life and completely ignored the 40, 50, or 60 things which are pretty good. So what I advocate is starting five minutes before you go to bed, consciously bring to mind things in your life which are pretty darn good. You have a roof over your head. You have food to eat. You don't have to bother about, uh, you know, going to work tomorrow. You know, you can get from place A to place B with reasonable certainty that you aren't going to get blown up. Right. Any of these is a big deal in many parts of the world today. 
And all of these are things that we take for granted. Consciously bring these things to mind and be grateful for them. And when persons start doing that, they say, Professor Rao, I started that exercise, but I could never finish it because I fell asleep. And that's exactly as it should be. And when you get up in the morning, don't go immediately to the space of, oh my God, there's too much to do and I don't have enough time to do it all. Instead, pause and bring that feeling of gratitude back to you. And throughout the day, as you go through, consciously call up. And the exercise that you just outlined is a perfect way of doing that. Let your default emotional domain be of appreciation and gratitude. Yes. And one thing, one thing that I would like is push it even further. Because you'll start off by being grateful for things, you know, grateful for good health, grateful for food to eat, grateful for shelter. But whatever you're grateful for can go away. You're grateful for good health. What happens if you get hit by a truck and become a quadriplegic? Eventually, and by the way, becoming a quadriplegic doesn't mean that, uh, you know, you suffer miserably because Christopher Reeve, in one of the candid interviews that he gave shortly before he passed away, said that he felt his life had more meaning and purpose after the riding accident than when he was Superman. We'll come back to that later if you want to explore further. But eventually, you want to feel grateful, period. Not grateful for, but grateful. And that is when you'll find the greatest benefit of this ex- of, of this exercise, when your default emotional domain is one of gratitude. Just be grateful that you can feel grateful. Srikumar, the other thing you said, which I thought was absolutely mind-blowing, was how events are not necessarily good or bad. The suffering, on the other hand, begins as soon as we label it good or bad, where else what this negative event in our lives could really be is simply a benevolent universe asking us to eat our vegetables. Yes. How, what type of practice or system could we put in our lives to live that idea? Okay. One of the uh, things I lay a lot of stress on in my program is an exercise that I call good thing, bad thing, who knows? And it really comes from an ancient Sufi tale. And it talks about a man and his son who lived in a beautiful valley and they were very happy, but they were dirt poor. The man decided he was going to get rich. And the way he was going to get rich was by breeding horses. So he bought a stallion. He didn't have enough money to buy a stallion, so he borrowed heavily from the neighbors. And the very day he bought the stallion, it kicked the top bar loose from the paddock in which he housed it and ran away. And the neighbors came around and commiserating and said, you thought you were going to get rich, but your stallion has run away and you still owe us money. You are screwed. And he shrugged his shoulder and said, good thing, bad thing, who knows? That stallion fell in with a group of wild horses, which were close to the place that he was. He, had, he was able to entice them into the paddock, which he had repaired, so escape was no longer possible. And all of a sudden, he had the stallion back, plus a dozen other horses, which by the standards of that village made him a wealthy man. And the neighbors came around shaking their heads and saying, congratulations, we thought you were destitute, but fortune has smiled on you. And he shrugged his shoulder and said, good thing, bad thing, who knows? The man and his son started breaking the horses so they could sell them on the market. And one of the horses threw the man's son and stomped on his leg. And it broke and it healed crooked. And the neighbors came around again, commiserating. He was such a handsome lad and now he'll never be able to find a girl to marry him. How sad. And the man shrugged his shoulder and said, good thing, bad thing, who knows? And that summer, the king of the country declared war on a neighboring country and press gangs moved through the villages, rounding up all the able-bodied young men. But this man's son was spared because he had a game leg 
And the neighbors had tears in their eyes as they came around and said, we don't know if we will ever see our sons alive again, but you still have your son, how fortunate you are. And he shrugged his shoulders and said, good thing, bad thing, who knows? And it goes on like that forever. So what I do is I encourage persons to go back in their past and look at anything that happened, which they classified good, uh, classified as bad, and ask, was this really bad? And then I ask them to think about something that they are encountering in their life right now, something which is taking up a fair amount of emotional energy, and say, is this necessarily bad? And when they look at that with a question of, hey, I took it for granted this is bad because of the mental models I had, but is this really bad? Like, for example, I had someone who was really stuck in a in a job and uh, she had a boss who was a very toxic boss and she was bemoaning her fate. And I asked her to look upon it. Is this really bad? And she came across, you know, maybe it isn't. You know, this is a lesson for me on how to handle difficult persons. And I'm fortunate that it happened early in my career because if I can deal with this person, I can deal with anybody, anytime, anywhere. And the moment she had that as her approach, it changed. You know, the relationship started working and she was always looking at, not as I'm being imposed upon, but how can I turn this situation so that I actually develop a working relationship with a difficult person? So she used it as a mechanism to improve her skills. And that change made all the difference. So there is practically no situation in our life which cannot be affected if we have this approach. Because what happens is we do not see the world as it is. We, this, we see the world as we are. Our mental models construct the reality that we face and we experience the reality as we have constructed it. And I'll go so far as to tell you listeners something. Every time there is a situation in your life that you find unpleasant and it persists, not some of the time, not most of the time. Every time there is a situation in your life that you find unpleasant and it persists, you're using one or more mental models that are not serving you well. And the moment you make changes in those mental models, poof, that situation will dissolve just like that. Amazingly put, Sri Kumar Rao. I love that story about the farmer and the horse. I remember watching a video on YouTube uh, from the Zen philosopher Alan Watts telling that same famous story. It is an incredible, yes. incredible, incredible story about how it suffering... of the Sufi tradition. Huh? Yeah, about how suffering only happens based on the meaning we give it. Now, what you're saying is so interesting because I'm talking here to... Um, folks, we're talking here to an MBA professor, but doesn't he sound a bit like a philosopher? And what I found interesting is, I'm just pulling up a book from my shelf. It's called Money and the Law of Attraction. Right. It's, by, yes. it's by Esther Hicks. Have you read this book, Sri Kumara? Yes, I have. You have, right? This is a work that is channeled, meaning that the author says that the work came from a different space. Maybe it was the universe. Maybe it was um, the author's own inspiration. But this is something in that book which I found interesting. It was a an exercise that the author suggested called Positive Aspects Morning Process. And the author says... Each day when you awaken, you have a choice to live your life anew. As you awaken the next morning, you will be in a positive, good-feeling place. And your first thoughts will be something like, ah, I'm awake. I've re-emerged back into physical. Lie there for a little while and bask in the comfort of your bed. And then offer a thought such as, today, 
No matter where I'm going, no matter what I'm doing, no matter who I'm doing it with, it is my dominant intent to look for things that feel good. When I feel good, I'm vibrating with my highest power. When I feel good, I'm in harmony with that which I consider to be good. When I feel good, I'm in the mode of attracting that which will please me once it, once it gets here. And when I feel good, I feel good. It is good just to feel good if the only thing it ever brought to you is the way you feel in the moment. But it brings ever so much more beyond that. And then on a second page, page 95, she goes on to say, we would encourage you to begin each day with the statement today, no matter where I go, no matter what I am doing and no matter who I am doing it with, it is my dominant intent to look for what I am wanting to see. Yes. Very powerful. So and that's exactly should be. I'd like to make one slight change in that, which is don't seek for good. See the good in whatever comes to you. You are going to seek, you have a model of the universe, so you are going to try to make that happen. So you are going to seek for opportunities, but don't seek for good. Whatever happens to you, see that it is good. It is a gift from the benevolent universe. I'm going to share something which is very powerful. Uh, you know what prasada is. Prasada, for those of you who are of Indian origin or uh, who come from Southeast Asia, you recognize it immediately. When you go to a temple, the priest gives you prasada. And prasada is a consecrated offering. It's a gift from the God. So you take it. It's a sweet, it's like it, a sweet right? piece of cake or it's biscuit or something. Sweet, but sometimes it could be a piece of coconut. Sometimes it could be right. a few grains of rice. But whatever it is, you accept it gratefully because it is a gift from the gods. You don't go around saying, you know, this is banana. I don't want banana. I want mango. Or I don't want mango. I want coconut. No, this is prasada. This is a gift. You take it and you take it gratefully. So exactly like that, as you go through life, you get stuff. Some of the things you want, some of the things you don't want. But accept it as if it was prasada. This is given to the universe. And what is whatever is given to you, you accept gratefully. You embrace it. And having embraced it, you then take what action you believe is appropriate. But you take it with gratitude rather than with resentment, with displeasure. And as you do that, you will find your life completely changes around. And that leads us right into that roomy quote that I sent you. Would you read it out to uh, your uh, listeners? Absolutely. So this was the quote that Sri Kumar sent me that I can tell you when I grasped the meaning behind this quote from Rumi, it impacted me. It brought me back to a state in which I had lost myself from. So before I get to the quote, those of you who have read my book, Code of the Extraordinary Mind, I speak about a particular moment in my life where I was going through a dip in my business. And what happened is that I had a realization during that time. It is often through these bad moments that the awakenings occur, exactly what Sri Kumar Rao was talking about. And when that awakening happened, I grew my business something like 400% in eight months, even though it was a five-year-old company at that point. 400% growth in eight months is huge, but it happened because of this awakening. And that awakening was to simply pull myself out of the grind and to focus on the positive. And I know it sounds simplistic, but this quote was what this, this, this quote embodies what that awakening is. And when Sri Kumar reminded me of this recently, as I was going through another tough time, it helped pull me out. So here's the quote. Now it comes from Rumi. Rumi is an, an old Persian 
Sufi poet. So he says this, When I run after what I think I want, my days are a furnace of distress and anxiety. If I sit in my own place of patience, what I need flows to me and without any pain. From this I understand that what I want also wants me, is looking for me and attracting me. There's a great secret in this for anyone who can grasp it. That's right. That's the important one. When I run after what I think I want, we are brainwashed vision. We are brainwashed to think, hey, we ought to go out and we ought to fight for for money, for power, for position, for hierarchy. We want to be number one because our culture inundates us with messages saying, you've got to look out for yourself. You've got to be competitive. You've got to go out and win. And I'm saying that there is a better way. Yes, you do want to go out and win, but don't go out with the thought of winning. Go out with the thought that, hey, I'm a part of the universe and my job is in whatever way I can make the universe a better place. And when you start out to make the universe a better place, the un- you, you move a couple of steps and the universe will move a dozen steps towards you or more. So by all means, have an intent, but don't be obsessed by your intent. Be open to what the universe is giving you and the universe is always nudging you. This is why I tell my uh, students, look at Lincoln's second inaugural. When you think about Lincoln as a great president, yeah, he gave great speeches. And most people think of the Gettysburg speech. And the Gettysburg speech undoubtedly was a great speech. But I think his second inaugural was even more powerful because that's the one where he goes with charity for all, with malice towards none. Let us do the right as God gives us to see the right. That's very important. He's not saying I'm going to do the right thing. He's saying I'm going to do the right thing as God gives us to do the right, which lays open the possibility that you're a fallible human and what you see as right today could turn out to be wrong tomorrow, in which case you will take appropriate steps and make uh, make corrections. But at any given time, the intent is there. You will do the best as it has been given to you to see the best. So that's hugely powerful. So two questions for you, Srikumar Rao, because I know these questions are emerging right now. You said two things which can be a little bit controversial. The first is that we live in a society that pushes us to do more, to be more. But what's wrong with that? And if we live our lives waiting for the universe to nudge us and prod us, doesn't that make us complacent human beings sitting on our asses, simply enjoying life rather than contributing to society? That comes there all, that comes all the time from uh, in my classes from uh, persons. And the answer is no. You accept the universe, but acceptance is not passive. It's very highly active. Because look, Vision, you have a vision of the universe. In your vision of the universe, here is what Mind Valley is. Here is where you are. And there's a range of dimensions. How are you doing financially? How are you doing in your family? How are you doing in society? How are you doing in your spiritual life? You've got a whole bunch of visions, correct? Mm -hmm. As long as you have a vision, it is incumbent upon you to do your level best to achieve that vision. You 
cannot stop. It is incumbent upon you. You have to do it. But as you do it, you also recognize that it is a benevolent universe that is working with you. You're doing what you think is right as you see it, as God has given you to see it. But maybe it is, maybe it isn't. You don't really know. And maybe the universe has different ideas and it puts obstacles in your path. When it puts the obstacles in your path, you do not let it affect your well-being. You do not become unhappy. Oh, my God, I started out to set on this path and it didn't happen. Therefore, I'm miserable. You cut what I call the if-then link. And when you cut the if-then link, you are not complacent. You're always striving. You're always trying to achieve a goal, but your well-being is not dependent on whether or not you achieve the goal. You invest in the process. You do not invest in the outcome. And when you invest in the process, two things happen. One, you actually start enjoying the journey. When you're obsessed about the outcome, which is a destination, you forget about the journey. But in reality, the journey is the only thing you have. So when you start investing in the process, not the outcome, you start enjoying the journey. And paradoxically, when you are not obsessed about the outcome, when you detach from it, the probability that you will reach the outcome you want actually increases. And it increases quite dramatically. Wow. Is that what you think Zen Buddhist monks meant by non-attachment to goals? Absolutely. Can you, you clarify have, that? Can you clarify that? Because a lot of people mis misinterpret that. They believe it means no. do not have goals. No, no, not, not at all. It is possible, by the way, for you not to have goals, but you have to be in a very, very, very advanced spiritual state before you can honestly get to the point where you don't have goals. Most of us are nowhere near, uh, near that. So for the West, West, West majority, of the population, including the vast majority of those who are going to listen to this, we're not there. Neither good nor bad, it's just an, a realization where you are. So when you're not in that very advanced spiritual state, then you do have goals and you can't say don't have goals because not having goals is itself a goal. So paradoxical. So right. forget about all that. Just recognize you have goals and some of you, especially if you listeners or entrepreneurs have very ambitious goals. And that's wonderful. The more ambitious your goal, the more you go about. The universe is nudging you to go out and do great things. But recognize that whether or not you accomplish the goals is not under your control. You think it is under your control, but it isn't. What you have is not control, but the illusion of control. But that illusion of control is very powerful because it will lead you to say, okay, here's what I'm going to do. These are the action steps I'm going to take. And if I take these steps, this will happen. Maybe it will, maybe it won't. But you take the steps because you're going back to what I said earlier, what Lincoln said, as God gives us to see the right. So you're true to your intent. If it doesn't happen, hey, that's the universe working. It does not affect your well-being. It simply brings you back to a new state where you say, okay, I tried this. This is what I expected. It didn't happen. So now I'm at a new starting point. Where do I go from here? And you might well decide the original goal I had was a good one. And I want to try it again. And I'm going to use different tactics, different strategies, try harder, whatever. Or you might say, I'll do something else altogether. It doesn't really matter. Each time you come to a point like that, it's a new starting point and you go through the whole process again. And at every instant, you will do the right as God gives you to see the right. And whether you succeed or not is in no way a part of your concern. 
You invest in the process. You do not invest in the outcome. That's that's beautiful. I began to realize this when uh, in the early stages when I was starting my business, Mind Valley. I was also dabbling with other companies. I started a software company. I started a web app that was a social bookmarking service. But all these other companies was just so much toil. Some of them failed. I lost money, and I couldn't understand why I was failing so much. But then it dawned on me. And my model of reality that I accepted was that I have a particular role, and that role was to focus on education, on personal growth. And so, all these other things was not what the universe had in store for me. And when I started focusing on that one thing, companies in personal growth, that's when I found success. It always happens, you know. What Rumi said is perfectly true. Stop focusing on what you think you want. Because what you really want is what the universe wants for you, and it wants you every bit as much as you want it. What you've got to do is quieten the immense amount of mental chatter that you have, so you can be open to the nudges the universe gives you. Okay, but this this brings up another question. When you were talking about Lincoln, talking about Lincoln, and talking about God-given、uh, assignments or so on, how do you? That that kind of spooks me because it makes me think about people like Ted Cruz. Now, no matter what you think about Ted Cruz, they are fundamentalists like him, like Ted Cruz, like the Ayatollah Khomeini, religious fundamentalists who believe that God speaks to them and God tells them what to do, and they come up with these obscene anti-humanist rules from denying global warming to、um, taking away the right to marry for certain、um, certain types of people. To teaching creationism in schools. Now, how do you know if you aren't becoming a fundamentalist if you believe in this higher power telling you what to do? Because here is the absolute, absolute crux of that. At every stage, what you're looking at is what am I doing that is raising other people's levels of consciousness? You are not trying to browbeat them. Into your particular model of this is the way everything should be. What you're doing is recognizing where they are, not trying to change their behavior in terms of prescriptions. This is what you should be doing. This is the one right way of doing things. But recognize. Ramakrishna had a wonderful example. He said, "Look, here is a house." And in this house, there are many, many different ways to get into the house. You can get in by the window. You can get in by the door. You can climb up and get in down the chimney. You can get in the, you know, by making a hole in the roof. You can even go underground and come up through the, you know, the sewage system and through the toilet bowl. Okay, this is the house. There are many ways into it. Those are the various traditions, the various、uh, methods people have, the various models they have. Don't be in a hurry to condemn everyone. You be where you are. You're anchored in what you are, and if your anchor is strong enough, others will be attracted to you, and they will automatically, if it is right for them, adopt your ways. Cruise. And his cohorts try very hard to force other people into this is how you should be, and there is a very strong my way, my God is the one right way, and everybody else is wrong. That is the very antithesis of what I am talking about. When Lincoln said, "As God gives us to see the right," he was not being 
dogmatic. He was simply making a personal expression. And Lincoln, you must remember, did something which is unique among American presidents. When he became president, he took some of the people who had opposed him the most strenuously and made them members of his cabinet. And somebody said, hey, you know, that's a very charitable thing you did. He said, no, that wasn't a charitable thing I did at all. I simply wanted the best people that I could find to be in that position. Can you imagine Ted Cruz doing that? Right. I see what you mean. Let's go on to another person in the world today who's making a lot of news, right? And I want to ask you about this because I'd love to know how you, as a wise sage, as a Yoda-like character in a beautiful, colorful shirt, would explain this person. Let's talk about Donald Trump. Where, what, what is going on with that man's consciousness? He seems so convinced about what he needs to do in the world, what he can fix. He seems to be the type of person that we're talking about, the type of person who believes that it's all going to come out right, that the universe is on his side. But what's going on there? How do we tell? Cause surely you can use this both ways. You can be doing good in the world and believing the universe is on your side, or you can be Trump and believing the universe is on your side. But how do we tell what is light, what is darkness? How do we tell what is higher consciousness, what is lower consciousness? What is your reading on that type of person? Uh, that has two parts to it. One is, how do I evaluate Donald Trump personally? And the second is, what is his role in the world right now? My evaluation of Donald Trump, frankly, is not very positive. I do not see that he is a person who raises the better feelings in, in others. In other words, what happens is any person who is in a position of power, any person who has a megaphone and can reach thousands of millions of others, I think has an obligation to bring out the better side of that person. Let me give you a story. And this is a very powerful story. Uh, comes from the Native American tradition, and there are many versions of it, but I like the version I'm about to share with you. So there was this young brave who was about to become an adult in the tribe, and as part of the rite of passage, he was having an interview with the medicine man. And the medicine man told me, here is this dog, kind, loving, trustworthy, intelligent, and here is this wolf, malvolent, vicious, cruel, ready to strike out and kill anything. And the dog and the wolf are both in you. And the dog and the wolf are fighting. So the brave asks, who's going to win? And the medicine man says, whichever one you feed. Now think about that. In each of us, there are altruistic, let's help our fellow men. Let's make the world a better place. Let's all live together and uh, take care of each other impulses. And in each of us, there are, let me grab everything that I can for myself and the devil take the hindmost impulses. We all have both of those. It is our obligation. And don't make the mistake, by the way, of thinking you're only going to feed the dog. You're not going to feed the wolf. That ain't going to happen. The best you can hope is that you're going to feed the dog a little bit more than you feed the wolf. But it is your duty to selectively identify and feed the dog in yourself. It is also your duty to selectively identify and feed the dog in everyone you meet. Supposing you're working in a company and you go off to the water cooler and you've had a rough day and you mention it to a colleague and he says he's had a rough day and you say you think you've had a rough day and you top his roughness with your rough dayness. 
you've just fed the wolf in both of you, and you don't even recognize you've done that because, hey, it kind of feels good. But supposing instead you took a different tack and said, yes, you know, this is terrible, and uh, this is happening in the place we work. Is there anything that the two of us can do collectively to make this a better place and see that it doesn't happen again? And if you do that, you just fed the dog in both of you. Every time, every place, every interaction you have, ask yourself the question, am I feeding the dog or am I feeding the wolf? A colleague tells you about problems that she's having in a marriage. And you say, yeah, yeah, your spouse shouldn't have done anything. You know, he or she is a bastard or a bitch. You're feeding the wolf. But instead you go down, is there any possible different construction that can be done? You know, maybe he was really trying best and it didn't work out. Every interaction you have, try and ask yourself this question. Am I feeding the dog or am I feeding the wolf? If you look at Donald Trump's public appear, public utterances, he's feeding the wolf big time. He is bringing out the worst in people. He is making it okay to be racist, to be misogynistic, to, you know, run down other people based on color, based on ethnicity, based on sex. So I don't think it bodes well as for us as a society. But then we come down to you know, his role in all of this. And who knows, maybe it's a benevolent universe that has said, hey, you know, there is a lot of this feeling already bubbling up and let us bring it up so that there is a massive catharsis. And unfortunately, maybe this massive catharsis will be accompanied by a great deal of turmoil. But on the other side of it, we will put it to rest for good. I don't know. I don't know how it plays out. But I am willing to be cautiously optimistic and saying, hey, this happened for a reason. Always, as Mahatma Gandhi said, there are tyrants in the world. And for a time, it will appear as though these tyrants are invincible and there's nothing you can do about it. But sooner or later, they will be consigned to the dust heap of history. I love that. And so when electing a political leader, when choosing anyone, whether it's a CEO or a political leader, we want to ensure that this person is the one feeding the dog and not feeding the wolf. And this to the extent we are capable of. To yes. the extent they're capable of. And this is a way we can identify higher consciousness versus lower yes. consciousness. Absolutely. Thank you. Thank you. That was when beautifully said. Thank you. So I want to ask you this other question. Back to the benevolent universe. How can we think the universe is benevolent when we see such horror everywhere? I mean, starvation, war, disease. That, that's a very good question, Vishen, and I run into it all the time. And I want you to, let, let me give you an example. Take forest fires. Forest fires are humongous events, horrific events. You know, there is tremendous destruction. There is loss of life. And for many years, the National Forest Administration was uh, uh, devoted to stamping out forest fires wherever they were, wherever they occurred. And over time, there was such a buildup of dry brush that eventually, starting about two decades ago, there were forest fires which are so wild that they were simply uncontrollable. And now, 
the forest administration has come to a different realization, which is forest fires have their role in ecology. They clear away undergrowth, they permit new growth to happen, and it's just part of the ecology of life. So what at one time we thought was terrible, we can now look back and say, hey, that's part of ecology. In exactly the same way, we're passing through tremendous tumult, and there is no doubt that there is an immense amount of individual suffering and collective suffering. But we may not be in a position, we probably aren't, where we can ever say that this is a good thing. But we can say, hey, maybe someday we will look back on that and say this too had its role. And until we reach that understanding, what we can simply say is, I see suffering and I am disturbed by it. And as long as I'm disturbed by the suffering, it is incumbent upon me to do whatever I can to alleviate it to whatever extent I can. This is an obligation. You cannot duck it. As long as you're distressed by suffering, suffering is you're being distressed is a way of the universe nudging you on the shoulder and saying, hey, here, here is something for you. It is obligatory on you to do the best you can in whatever way you can to help alleviate that suffering. But put it down to someday we will look back and say, hey, okay, you know, maybe this did have a, a, a side to it, which is not immediately obvious to us now. And when you come down to it on a personal level, this is something you haven't gotten into, but my students do. Professor Rao, my child just died. Now, how can you possibly say this wasn't a bad thing? Here is what happens, Vision. We have a model, and in our model, it is good to be alive, and you have to strive to be alive, and death is a bad thing, and death to a child is a very bad thing. But supposing you have a model that we come into this earth, we know not from where, and we go, we know not where, but we come to accomplish something, and the moment we have accomplished what we were supposed to, we go. In that case, when a child dies, maybe the child accomplished what the child was supposed to do and then left, maybe in a better place. Do we know that it's true? No. Do we know that it's not true? No. So simply put it down that when we say, hey, this is terrible, we're not grieving for the child. We're grieving for ourselves. So put that down and say, hey, you know, it's a benevolent universe. And unhappy as I feel, perhaps my child fulfilled whatever role was there for him or her to accomplish and has now moved on. Accept that with grace. And if you cannot accept it, at least put it in a box and say, I don't understand it right now, but maybe someday I will have the wisdom to recognize what happened. But until that happens, I'm not going to make it dysfunctional. That's a that was a tough that was a tough question. Uh, the question there was how can you say that horrible things like the death of a child, serious illness, can be given by a benevolent universe? That was a tough question. I like the way you answered it. I know some of you may have faced death. Um, I have a friend right now who's going through the death of a mother. It's a it's a painful thing. It's one of the most heart wrenching things that we experience in life. I just want to offer a bit of advice and an additional resource for those of you who want to explore this particular model better. The book is uh, unfortunately, it's not in my bookshelf right now because I believe I lent it to someone, but it's called Home with God by Neil Donald Walsh. 
I read this book in 2008. It transformed my life and it helped me understand death in a way. Everything in this book is of, is of course nothing more than a model of reality, but it's a model of reality that if you buy into, it really can help you deal with these difficult situations in your life. Again, the book is called Home with God, by far the single best book I've read on this particular topic. Sri Kumar, let's go on to the next question. The next question is this, can you prove that the universe is benevolent? That's very easy to answer, Vishen, no. But can you prove that the universe is not benevolent? Equally, no. So the point is, you can't prove the universe is benevolent. You can't prove the universe is not benevolent. And if you say, hey, am I kidding myself when I say the universe is benevolent? Yes, you are. But equally, you're kidding yourself if you believe the universe is indifferent or not benevolent. So why not kid yourself in a direction which makes your life better? We always have a model of the universe. We think we're living in a real universe. We're not. We're living in a construct. And we built that construct with the mental chatter we entertain and the mental models we hold. We're all living in the matrix. Only this matrix was not created by an alien civilization out to enslave us. It does enslave us, but we created it. And having created it, we then experience it as we created it. So given that we're always kidding ourselves, let's at least do it so that we have a better life. And what if we're not really kidding ourselves? What if the universe really is the way it is? That's where you have a booster rocket attached to your life and it simply takes off. Because remember, I mean, persons who are interested in this can get my first book, Are You Ready to Succeed? where I talk about you can actually create miracles in your life. And when people talk about miracles, they think about big things, you know, like Moses parting the Red Sea, so Krishna lifting the mountain with his little finger. But that's not really necessary in your life. For a miracle to happen in your life, all that is necessary is that you have the firm conviction that the universe interceded for you and on your behalf. And if you do the exercises that I recommend in Are You Ready to Succeed, it will not take a whole lot of time before you see how many miracles there are in your life, there have been in your life, and there are in your life right now. And as you become aware of that, as you become grateful for them, more will happen and they'll come at a cascading pace. This is something that I can tell you, but you'll only know the power when you experience it for yourself. But you can. And uh, I just want to add, that is an incredible book. Srikumar, do you have the book on your table? Could you lift it up, please? Absolutely. Yes, I can. Are you ready to succeed? That That's a phenomenal book. Uh, for those of you listening, if you wanted to explore these topics uh, better with Srikumar, get that book, Are You Ready to Succeed? And Srikumar, this is the other book of yours that I have with me right now. It's called Happiness with Work. And Happy it's about, do you wake up each day radiantly alive and bringing with cheer, brimming with cheer? Do you derive deep meaning from what you do? Are you so passionate about your work that you would almost pay the privilege of doing it? Powerful ideas. And um, a lot of the ideas we've been speaking about are contained in Sri Kumar's book. So I would strongly, strongly, strongly recommend them. I just want to um, brag about you a bit, Sri Kumar. So 
you know, as I mentioned in the introduction, Sri Kumar Rao teaches in schools, in universities like Berkeley. And I, what, what other universities have you been teaching in? I've taught at many of the top business schools in the world, uh, Vision. I've taught at Columbia Business School, at Kellogg, at Berkeley, at London Business School. I'm teaching right now at Imperial College. Wow. And I have spoken at, oh, a plethora of them, spoken at Stanford, at Harvard, at Dartmouth, at INSEAD, you know, all over the place. Amazing stuff. So definitely, when you're reading these books, keep in mind that you are learning from a guy who is a foremost MBA professor. So, you know, he's got the credentials, but he's also, as you can see, a bit of an Esther Hicks in that way. He's kind of, he's like, he's like Yoda with an Indian accent. So I love talking to you because honestly, I kind of think of you as my Yoda. Every time I talk to you, I get these new ideas in my head and I approach life in a different way. And I'm, I'm an entrepreneur. If you are an entrepreneur. I want to encourage you to explore these ideas of entrepreneurship. Now, Srikumar, let's go on to the next question. We've spoken about a lot, but how can we adopt the benevolent universe model in our lives? The easiest way to do that vision is to get yourself a notebook or some recording device and consciously look for instances in your life where stuff happened that was just good for you. And you can look upon that and say, hey, you know, I struck out lucky that time. Big instances, small instances. And let, let me give you a classic example. I had a very important, very lucrative contract, which was canceled on me abruptly with no notice. And I was really pissed off at that uh, for about five minutes and then said went on. But as a result of that contract being canceled on me, I was in New York instead of London on a particular day. And a friend of mine said, hey, Sri Kumar, uh, would you deliver the keynote uh, for a conference that uh, I'm conducting. I said, fine. So I delivered the keynote and somebody came up to me from the audience and said, Sri Kumar, I really loved your speech. So I loved him. A short while later, he spoke and I went up to him and said, I really loved your speech. So he loved me. So we had a mutual love fest going. And then he called me up uh, a few weeks later and said, I'm running this conference in Copenhagen. Would you be good enough to speak? And I said, sure. So I hopped over and spoke at his speech. And he video recorded it and put it up on the web. And all my life, I, you know, I always wanted to be a TED speaker. But my model was, you've got to be really good and really famous to be a TED speaker. And, you know, maybe someday I'll get there. But I threw the intent out and forgot about it. And then one day I was teaching at Berkeley. Uh, teach, and one of my students came up and said, hey, Professor Rao, congratulations on being on TED. And then uh, another, I thought she was pulling my leg. And then another student came by and said, Professor Rao, congratulations on being on the homepage of TED. So when I looked, and I was on the homepage of TED because TED decided there are some talks which are so good, they deserve to be on TED, but they're not on TED. And they put me on TED. So I became a TED speaker on the main platform on TED.com, not one of these TEDx things, uh, simply because they said, hey, this is it. Wow. And I never even expected that to happen. They've only done that, I believe, seven times. And mine was one of the talks that uh, they put there. And now it's been viewed in, it's been hosted on many other sites. And cumulatively, they've been viewed well over a million times. And all kinds of things have flowed to me as a result of that, which are far greater than I could imagine if that contract had actually taken place. That is incredible. I'm the person who canceled the contract, but I have thought about it. Right, right. And it's a classic example of what you spoke about happening. 
So Srikama Rao, thank you so much for that profound wisdom. Seriously, folks, I love this man because every time I talk to him, my mind explodes with new insights that move me forward in the world. It's no wonder that his classes are so popular among MBA professionals because so many other things we learn about business doesn't help us get as far as the simple understandings, the Rumi quote, the idea of the benevolent universe, how to deal with setbacks, especially if you're one of these people who are climbing the career ladder, trying to build a company, you know setbacks are going to come your way. And these tools so help you navigate all of these things while truly, truly, truly enjoying life right now. So thank you so much, Srikumar. This has been an incredible, incredible, incredible conversation. And I'm so excited to be to be able to learn from you and benefit from these incredible ideas. Thank you. Thank you, Sri. My pleasure, Vishen. Vishen Lakiani, and this is the Mind Valley Podcast. If you like the Mind Valley Podcast, take the next step. Become a Mind Valley member. Imagine being coached daily by the greatest teachers on the planet. How quickly would you transform your health, your mindset, your body? your relationships? How quickly would you double the size of your company? How quickly would you see your career grow? How quickly would you eliminate any limiting belief that's holding you back and manifest a life that you once thought beyond your dreams? When you become a member, you don't just get access to the greatest education in the world. You become part of a community of 150,000 of the most incredible people dedicated to personal growth. Go to mindvalley.com forward slash now to get started.